welcome to the Isle of Faces. I am Sir Berkeley. You are here for Scraps and Scrolls or Valoridus Storm of Swords Part 8. So I, I guess we're kind of getting to the halfway point. There's a lot to do today. Five big, 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 big chapters. So let me thank you for coming to join us and coming to chat some more Song of Ice and Fire. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Indeed, I am speaking to you from a blue-skied, sunny England, so that is lovely. However, it does not reflect my mood. I am a most grumpy sir today, a most grumpy green man, for two reasons. One, poorly, poorly dog, post-operation dog. She's very upset, very sleepy, so that's rubbish. Number two, I lost a basketball game last night. Second all season, I'm raging about it. And for the next hour and a half, I'll be taking you through a play-by-play account of why we should have won. No? You don't want that? Well, maybe that's a second podcast idea. Alright, we'll stick with A Storm of Swords for now, I suppose. If you're good. If anyone misbehaves, I'm talking basketball. Now, I know I keep teasing announcements about announcements. No big updates yet. They are coming. Do not worry. I'll be very excited to share those details with you when we get there, but not quite yet. On other notes, I have a completely different announcement for you, and that is that I will be guesting on another podcast. Someone has been crazy enough to invite me on again. I don't know how it keeps happening. Sometime this week, I will be going on the Brotherhood Without Manners podcast, and I'm sure you'll agree that's an excellent name. Um, and not, if you're not aware of the guys, they are fairly new, but they're a reread project as well, so go and check them out. And they've been kind enough to invite me on to talk, you, you've guessed it, talk about castles again, but also a bit more about how the castles book came around and, and, and the process and all that stuff. So it's so actually uh, a different experience for me. I'm going to be on the other side of the questions. Normally I get to ask other people, but uh, no, this time someone is interested in me for some reason. So keep your eyes out on that. Obviously that'll be retweeted by me and tweeted out by the guys so yeah looking forward it's always good to go on new podcasts make new connections before we get to pair pick let me just give a shout out to our wonderful jade branch patron lady raj mistress of horse we are always so appreciative of you as we are all our patrons we have some new ones this week devorah lynch you've joined up thank you so much anyone else who would like to join you know where to go by now and your support is always very much appreciated we'd love to hear from you so like I say, no update on kind of secret announcements of upcoming stuff, but that will be coming. Got some shout outs coming up midway through this episode, so make sure you check that out. And before we get to our chapters today, we have Pear Pick to sort out, of course. So if you recall, last week's Pear Pick was two kings, basically, essentially. Two opposing forces in the War of the Five Kings, especially the opening of the War of the Five Kings. We put Rob Stark versus Tywin Lannister, and I can reveal to you, Rob Stark wins. Of course, 67 to 33%. It was a blow away. I'm actually surprised it was that close. I tried to make a little bit of a case for Tywin, but Rob is just far too popular. Even George himself said he wanted a Rob POV, so who are we to argue? But then we go through a few of your comments and replies, because that's always great to have that interaction. Our beloved patron, at V Dakasini, again, I apologise for all names, it's not my strong point. She actually said she voted for Rob after much inner debate because she doesn't actually want either POV, and that's a response we get fairly often about these POVs. I think George is pretty set, but it's always interesting. But she says we pretty much know what Tywin is up to anyway, especially on our rereads, and that's definitely true. We've talked about him a lot on these rereads. And I guess I'd rather be in a Stark's mind than his, and a bonus point for Grey Wind dreams, and, f- and knowing what power actually feels like when dumped on a kid. I think, yes, that... These Catelyn chapters where we're seeing Rob, well, we have seen Rob accept that power back in um, Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings, and now what's doing to him in Storm of Swords, that would be fascinating to read, of course. Although she does actually also make a brilliant point that 
Jenna Lannister would make a better POV than Tywin. So that's very intriguing. Maybe that's going to have to be a future pair pick, which uh, Tywin relative we can get in there. At Petrie Chorfell, Rob definitely, because you can never have too many POVs from House Stark. Yeah, let's throw a Benjen in there. Let's get Rick on board as well. I've always wanted an insight into how he thinks and feels dealing with leadership with Catelyn and planning and fighting the battles. Yeah, that would also be very interesting. I would adore a scene of uh, Rob planning out these different battles with Brynden, the Blackfish Tully. And also, most importantly, him meeting Jane and starting a relationship. And it's also lovely to have the Stark kids reminisce back to their days at Winterfell. They have the best family dynamics in A Song of Ice and Fire. Well, we can't argue with that. That is absolutely true. I would love to see Rob remembering Winterfell, but I guess it would also come with a sad note, especially if we have him getting the news of Bran and Rickon and thinking back or when he finds out. In fact, today he finds out what's happened to all the small folk. That would be rough, but we would love him. At Cotton Cottonscamp, always a, a contributor to these questions, they said, Rob, mostly because I want to see his relationship to Greywind, but I also want to see his campaign in the Westerlands. That'd be another really good addition. Obviously, we don't get that at all through any POV so that would be brilliant and also if we want to get sad how was the red wedding from Rob and Greywind's POV no no we can't have that that's too sad I retract my pair pick <laughs> I do not want to talk about that and just to get one in on the Tywin side of things from at Tuesday Dreams I voted for Tywin because I'm already too Stark orientated maybe we just need to balance it out a bit maybe we want to get Lannisters and Starks on equal footing but there we go that's an, an easy win for Rob Stark, maybe that will comfort us somewhat when we come to later chapters in this book. Probably not, but maybe. Let's move on, though, to a new pair pick. So if we had kings this time, let's have some more relatives of kings, shall we? And possibly a future one. Let's go Targaryen this week. And I think there's only two real choices we can have. And they're both very similar sounding names. This week's pair pick is Maester Aemon versus fake Aegon or young Griff whatever you'd like to call him or true Aegon I'm sure some of you call him that as well so our two possibly Targaryens I don't think we can really slip for Zerus and he's not in there long enough and obviously Daenerys has her POV so we've got these two so let us know what are your thoughts would you rather have the the past focus of Maester Aemon and all his memories and all of his extensive knowledge especially Rhaegar that would be interesting or would you like young Aegon for the future going forward I know he does have John Connington next to him, but maybe you don't like John Connington. Maybe you want a different POV. Maybe we think John Connington is about to be offed by his grayscale and we need Aegon to have his own POV. Would be very, very interesting. But let us know that poll will be going up later today. Okay, I think that's a good sign that we should get started with today's chapters. So let's have the briefest of reminders. We'll begin with Sam 2, where we go back to Craster's Keep. Then Aya 6, down in the Hollow Hill. Catelyn 4, where we say goodbye to Hoster. Davos 4, where we say hello Davos, at the hand of the king. And finally, Jamie 5, where we have a bath at Harrenhal. So let's begin with Sam 2. Last week's chapters really only had Sansa's wedding and Jon's ascent of the wall in terms of major plot developments. And in the other three chapters, they were a bit slower, more atmosphere-building devices. Certainly, that was the case for most of Jamie's chapter on Wolf Tyrion's last week. And considering the end of our recent chunks, our little bite-sized chapters, Tyrion was definitely a change of pace in favour of the slower. That's last week. It's not so today, as we were really starting off with a bang. In Sam's first chapter, we had mostly memories of a huge event. Now he experiences one live. It's straight from that to a superb duel between two finely revealed characters. Then we see Catelyn and Rob sink further down. Davos finally rise back up. 
before finishing off with one of the most important Jamie chapters we ever get. Like I said at the beginning, we're still a little bit short of halfway, but given the absolute roller coaster the second half of this book is, we can really feel the action beginning to build in this very important chunk. You're going to see that as we go through today's chapters. The opening paragraph of Sam 2 not only highlights that life and death mirror, but shows us that for Sam and the others, there simply isn't an escape from the fist of the first men, at least not yet. We won't be told the extent of the losses on the march to Crasters just yet, that comes a little bit later, but already we know that despite finding shelter, finding warmth, finding food, there isn't anything to be done for poor Bannon, despite best efforts. It's a good hint for later in the chapter. For all Sam wants, for all Sam tries, some things are out of his control. But also a hint for later, Sam makes the choice to try anyway, which is going to make a big difference to several lives. Today's first quote. I'm cold. Please, I'm so cold. Sam was trying to feed him onion broth, but he could not swallow. The broth dribbled over his lips and down his chin as fast as Sam could spoon it in. That one's dead, Craster eyed the man of indifference as he worried at a sausage. Be kinder to stick a knife in his chest than that spoon down his throat, you ask me. So classic Craster there, he's not changed unfortunately since we last saw him. This is a good reintroduction reminder of the, the kind of guy he is. I think as he's mentioned that if we're going to be fair to him, it is worth noting he didn't ask for all these people to come down on his food and all that he's got to think of himself at some point there is a limited amount of food winter is coming and he is absolutely outnumbered so i've always found it fascinating about about craster does he act this way this kind of mean way because he thinks it's intimidating and therefore will persuade against attack because he's kind of being the alpha does he really trust in Dior Mormont's command? Just thinks, well, they're never ever going to touch me because Dior's here. Does he really believe the cold gods will protect him because he is a godly man? There's every chance his intelligence just doesn't allow for any thoughts of this and he simply believes himself capable of defeating all challenges or doesn't even recognise as a threat at all. Much more interestingly is if he simply can't compute that anyone would dare break guest right. That would tie in much more strongly with the themes of this book and this chapter. So that'd be, yeah, very interesting. Either way, that's about as far as we can stretch any sympathy for Craster. Yes, it must be intimidating with 50-odd hungry guys around you, but not only is he so awful to his daughters as to deserve what he gets, but even though he is abiding by the rules of Gesterite, he's pushing it to the boundaries. Men are still dying under his roof, men are still starving, as we see with Bannon. Yet he makes no move to do anything above the minimum. Again, clearly showing he's not worried about pissing his guests off, as his speech and manner confirm, despite it being within his power to do so. He doesn't pretend to care, he's openly hostile or insulting, and he's eating sausage while doling out hard bread and thin soup. However much he believes in guest right, or cold gods, or geomormont, you think even Craster might be able to read the room and read humans enough to know that he's throwing matches of wildfire, as we're going to see as this chapter goes, it's just going to be a slow burn, and it's going to explode. Ironically, I suppose the women of Craster's Keep have been living this way for years, where Craster controls the food and therefore controls them. Sure, he puts himself and the women on the same tier, above the crows here, but I'm betting when they're gone it's a two-tier system of Craster and then everyone else beneath him. Whenever the food gets scarce, guess who's getting first choice of the grub still? Change topic slightly, let's go for another quote. When they'd left Castle Black, Brown Bernard had been carrying bags of Moorish fire, mustard salve, ground garlic, tansy, poppy, king's copper and other healing herbs, even sweet sleep which gave the gift of a painless death. But Brown Bernard had died on the fist, and no one had fought to search for Maester Eamon's medicines. Hake had known some herb law as well, being a cook, but Hake was also lost. This quote is great for reminding us of the pure chaos of the fist. Jira and the other officers did a fantastic job of organising a retreat in the manner they did, but not all boxes could be ticked, and any form of healthcare was slain. Crucially, not only does that mean that men are dying, but they are dying slowly, painfully, and that makes a huge difference. 
If Brown Bonnard or even Hay could survive, by some miracle they had a maester with them, they could ideally be saving lives along the way, but even if not, they could at least be easing pain or knowing when it's too late to do anything. These men don't have that, so they are forced to watch their friends and brothers struggle away in terrible pain before death takes them. As Sam notes, there are wounded with pus, there are delirious wounded, and it leaves people like Sam with no option but to keep spooning soup into Bannon's mouth and hoping for the best. But yes, just to double down on this, hunger, chaos, not knowing what to do, the cold everywhere, I think we can expect more than one group of people to be subjected to similar circumstances come winds of winter. This is just a little hint from George. And I think as he's mentioned, this, the, the really hard blow to morale this is this situation of your host not doing as much as he can and after all you've been through. And all of it really puts the writing on the wall. And I have to wonder what is going on in Jill Mormont's mind throughout all of this. He is surely more intelligent than Craster, and he knows firsthand what these men have survived. He likely suspects or knows of the hidden larder, and must also be aware of the whispers spreading throughout his men. So is he also putting his faith in Guestright, in the oath of the Night's Watch? Perhaps. But again, he is a smart man in a position of leadership. He should be able to see through how he thinks things should be, and what they actually are. And what they actually are is mutiny is all but assured by this point. An army defeated in a battle with humans would have resorted to such. An army ravaged by the fist of the first men, even Guestright can't protect that. And this is something I argued about a lot when season 8 came out, is that there should always be this huge psychological fallout from having to fight against animated dead men and the others. For these surviving few, the parameters of reality and what the world truly made of has all just been blasted apart. Everything they thought was true no longer is, so kind of anything's possible. So yes, Guestright is ingrained within their society, especially for those from the north, but if this is now a world that can contain an army of the dead, it's also a world where trivial things such as guest right don't seem so solid anymore. This is the breaking of all society, of all anyone has ever known, and mutiny will just be one of the, one of the effects of such, and again, I think we're going to see more of that in Winds of Winter. The psychology of the fist, and their being chased through the wood and picked off one by one, must have made Craster seem a paradise at first. A bit later in the chapter, it is detailed how they raise earthen dikes and keep their fires burning all night. And wouldn't you? PTSD must be spreading rampant through the men already, and even sharpened sticks or naked fire must be a huge comfort to them initially, as well as the fact that no further attacks come. When the chapter moves on to highlight Gilly's giving birth, we're faced with the issue of whether these men should be interfering with how Craster runs his house. His roof, his rule, seems almost as inset as part of guest right and not up for discussion. But as Sam remembers Craster beating one of the younger women, and I'm sorry but I can never quite bring myself to call them wives, we can see the dreary night's watchmen are torn on the subject. Clubfoot Carl gives us major hints of, of what he's going to be hoping for when the mutiny kicks off, yet Garth of Greenaway and Anna of Rosby also mutiny but do protest here. Perhaps part of the reasons is that Geo is allowing this and therefore all bets are off for morality clauses. As he's got to my note on uh, Sam summing it up and him having his own dilemma on which oath you should be looking at first and that kind of di inner difficulty. But the, the end point is, much as John is doing to the southwest, Sam is making up his mind that wildlings are people too, the same as anyone else, and therefore comes under the realms of men line of the Night's Watch oaths. Personally, I don't think it's the oaths that push Sam to decide protecting Gilly is the right thing to do, but the fact that he is a decent human being. He can recognise the rule that says Craster can do what he wants, but he can also recognise that isn't morally right and internally object to it. The fact he thinks on this through the lens of knightly duties is also very interesting for a character like Sam. Here's another quote. His roof, his rule, the ranger Ronald Harcloud reminded them. Craster's a friend to the watch, and that friend to the watch, that specifically, is repeated throughout the chapter, not just by Sam, 
and even though it's flying in the face of all apparent evidence it's kind of like a mantra that they're having to repeat to convince themselves this is good we're okay this guy's friendly well we know how it ends up another quote craster had 19 wives but none who dare interfere once he started up that ladder that's a very tough line to read and it really speaks to the control and terror craster has instilled in his victims the fact that not one of the 19 have tried to end him in his sleep or although to be fair we don't know if there was a 20th or, or 21st who did and then paid the price also tells us something Sam says he rules with an iron fist, but that's an incredibly simple way of describing the monopoly he has on their minds. For the majority, we have to assume there is nothing else that these women have ever known. Another quote from this section. Gilly had spoken of the white cold as well, and she had told them what sort of offerings Craster made to his gods. Sam had wanted to kill him when he heard. There are no laws beyond the wall, he reminded himself, and Craster's a friend to the watch. See, there again, it's already repeated. But... In general, this is one of the more forceful thoughts we ever get from Sam, him wanting to kill someone. And certainly, this early on, maybe a little bit later he'll start having those kind of thoughts, but definitely not here. And that shows us the depths of these convictions he's having. Curiously, this comes after a paragraph noting that Crast is still shouting about how he interacts with the cold gods, how he supplies offerings to keep himself safe, how he has a working relationship with the things that attacked them on the fist. Given all we've said of the physical and mental toil these men have been through and the horrors they saw on that hill, it's actually pretty surprising Craster isn't just killed on his feet there and then after saying that. Clearly Night's Watch would not want to hear any of that and I'm sure a decent percentage share Sam's outrage at child sacrifice. To move on to the next scene, outside the hall, it's a quick return to high school where everyone refuses to believe Sam has a girlfriend slash scored a touchdown or slash killed an other. What was clearly the defining moment of Sam's entire life is being played off as a joke by the majority of the surviving men, even those of a kinder nature, and Sam is suffering for it in classic Sam style. There's a lot of group dynamics at play here. After the fist, these men are desperate for both a reason to smile, however thinly or fakely, and a distraction, and there is something admirable about them being able to take interest in an archery competition, all things considered that does say a lot about the, the human spirit there. But who was, the, who was the common denominator for most of the jokes back at the wall? Sam. Ah, isn't that bear? Making fun of the tubby boy. Yes, there's a bit of normalcy sneaking back in. Much better to think on that than whatever happened back at the fist. At the same time, there's likely an element of these men having to tell themselves that Sam killing an other isn't true, because each of them were likely terrified out of their wits at the sight of the whites and the others, and just legged it at first chance. The idea that Sam, the lowest, most cowardly of them all, actually did something about it while they were running away? No, that's too much to deal with at the moment. He's definitely made up. Let's think of a cruel name to call him. That's more what we're used to. Obviously, Sam has to put up terrible effects of the fist, plus this new round of bullying. So it's not surprising to see him indulge in a bit of self-beating up, which, I guess, is his normal. So maybe that's just him trying to re-enter the usual world as well. Survivor's guilt is something we've not really discussed yet, but that is clearly part of Sam's situation and is probably shared by most of the other men too. But it directly relates to Sam trying to champion Dragonglass and not himself as the true killer because he doesn't have the self-belief to give himself credit. Remember the Dragonglass though because we'll be coming back to that in a moment. Thankfully, as he did back with the other, Gren steps in to save Sam. And I'd like to restart the campaign to note Gren as one of the most criminally underrated characters in all of Song of Ice and Fire. His simple but incredibly deep few lines here are heartwarming in, all, in this place of all places. As he reminds Sam, it doesn't really matter if anyone else knows about his great deed. He knows. And the deed was done. So who cares? That's a good philosophy for us all to take. And just one more note on Gren. We have a, a quote here. Pip always teased Gren about being thick as a castle wall. 
Oh, so forget Brian. Let's have Gren as a Sir Duncan descendant, please. Yes, that's a new campaign I'm starting. So that we talked about Dragonglass. Sam laments the lost cash, and we lament with him. I think this little passage may be a microcosm of Sam's larger task, or at least one of them, in the Great War for the Dawn. Here, he tries to spread the message that Dragonglass kills others. Well, he's already started doing that with Stannis in, um, in later books, so perhaps he will continue to do so as the series progresses. While plenty of people don't believe him, some do, and most crucial of all, Dior Mormont falls into that latter camp. For all his faults, and worry not, I'll be going through a bunch of them in a moment, Dior allows the rigid walls of his mind to lower just a little bit and listen to an alternative way of thinking for once. Not only does he listen, he acts, spreading out what little dragonglass remains and basically giving it his official endorsement, and hence, the endorsement of the Night's Watch. Maybe this does only last for a little while before everything kicks off, but maybe a few of the survivors will remember one of Dior's final commands. As much as I've railed on Dior throughout this project, this is an incredibly enlightened decision and shows how his way of thinking has changed. It's too late, he should have done it earlier, but like Gren Tortoise, the fact is, he did it. This is an incredibly difficult situation for Dior. He's watching his men die around him. It's likely sunk in how responsible he was for what happened at the fist. He's having to deal with the emotional and physical fallout himself whilst maintaining an aura of strength on the outside, which he does fantastically, I should note, and again, maybe weighing up the possibilities of mutiny. Even with all that on his mind, he listens to Sam, he takes his advice, and he does his best to protect his men. For once. I can't resist getting, a, getting that jab in there. Let me give you this quote from the man himself. We never knew, but we must have known once. The Night's Watch has forgotten its true purpose, Tarly. You don't build a wall 700 feet high to keep savages in skins from stealing women. So a big round of applause, because after three books, Jules finally got what the deal is here. And so much of this relates back to very long conversations we first had about Dior in A Game of Thrones, both when we first met him and especially after the white attack that, that John stops. As we said way back when, it's not as if Dior Mormon arrived at Night's Watch that was still fully knowledgeable and prepared for an attack from the others and appreciative, appreciative of what had happened in the long night. All of this true purpose was lost maybe thousands of years prior, so it's not entirely his fault but Dior didn't help the problem, despite being provided with more motivation than anyone supposedly in 8,000 years. He's the one who actually saw the whites and seen the bodies and everything else. It's all very well now, asking these questions and wondering about preparations for the wall, but it should have been done the second after Jon Snow burnt the corpse of O4 back in Castle Black. He should have considered the implications before he thought of this great ranging. He should have done a great many things, which... I won't divulge into now at the risk of simply repeating what I've said in past episodes. You can always go back and have a listen to my dual ranting. But suffice to say, dual Mormont is probably now aware of all the things you should have done but didn't. And I know I said I wouldn't repeat too much, but it has to be hammering on Dior at this particular moment that he has severely lowered the chances of the wall survival with this foolish ranging. He had opportunities to turn back, to do things differently, to not lose the majority of 300 of their best men, but he lost sight of their original mission. He took too long to read the signs, and he knows he may go down as law commander who started the end. On top of that, it likely irks him how differently things could have gone, especially in terms of that dragonglash cash at the fist. And I'm constantly wondering as I read this chapter whether there will be some mission back above the wall to retrieve some of the lost dragonglass, whether from the fist or elsewhere. That is a, a distinct possibility, I think. Another part of what Jill says here, the wall was made to guard the realms of men, and not against other men, which is all the wild things are when you come right down to it. So this is the more interesting part to me, and it signals if the retreat had gone better, and Dior Mormont had returned to the wall alive, 
I, th I think he might have decided to do what John eventually does anyway. Chul knows the true threat, as he outlines here. He knows that even if he didn't want to protect them, to leave the wildlings on the other side of the wall would be the same as handing the others a new weapon. Who knows how he would have dealt with the attack on the wall or with Stannis, but it's quite touching that Jill can realise he's been wrong about the wildlings even at this stage of his life. That and the fact he's mirroring the lessons his own protege is learning many miles away or that Sam is learning right in front of him. We've got two quotes mixed together here. Is dragon glass made by dragons, as the small folk like to say? A little bit later there's, The children of the forest use dragon blades, Sam said. They'd know where to find obsidian. So I, I just like the duality Dior and Sam come up with together here. Dior mentions the dragons, as his son is connected to. Sam brings up the children of the forest, a race he will grant Bran access to later in this book. Two ancient and possibly original forces of the world coming back to save humanity. Sign me up, please. Despite Dior saying nice things about wildlings as urban protection, acting upon that idea is still a different kettle of fish, because he's still unwilling to stop Craster's evil practices. He won't save his victims or Craster's new child. Now, fairly, Jill points out they aren't in much of a position to save anyone if they're going to have to go on another forced march, but that wasn't the case on their outward journey, or in the years previous. Jill's hands do hold some blood from Craster's wrongdoings. Again, we discussed that way back when. And it's really not clear whether Jill has clicked that what Craster is up to with his sons is directly related to the others who have been hunting or massacring them. You've got to think he does know, but if that's the case, I find it amazing he's not done anything about it especially knowing what it actually means for the newborn child. Ignoring Sam's attempts at being the lone good guy in this situation, the point is we can feel this chapter beginning to turn from bad to worse as Craster starts pushing the crows out into the cold. Again, to be fair to him, he doesn't have to just sit in on a guest right forever, but he can't expect it to be well received that he's ending it before his guests are properly fed or healed. The fact he's referring to dealing with the injured crows in the same way as he might about farm animals also isn't exactly going to help out with morale. And as we see, it's just some badly timed further fuel on that wildfire. I also find it interesting that Craster begins pushing the point of the crows leaving as soon as his son is born. Maybe because he knows that actually seeing a sacrifice to the cold gods will not go down well at all. To end the chapter and begin the burning, we return to the beginning as Bannon finally succumbs to his injuries. And like I said earlier, it's just all timing of this. Considering all the other factors, one more death is just one too many for everyone assembled. Especially when they are now dying even with protection and food however sparse. They're supposed to be safe, they're supposed to have earned that with their horror march. Bannon survived the fist and that march. He deserves better than dying on a cold floor. So who can we blame? Well, this quote might tell us. Don't you bloody believe it. The day we leave, he'll tap a keg of mead and sit down to feast on ham and honey and laugh at us, out starving in the snow. He's a bloody wildling, is all he is. There's none of them friends of the watch. He kicked at Bannon's corpse. Ask him if you don't believe me. So that's uh, Clubfoot Carl speaking there, I think, and... Clearly, it's all too easy for him and others to point at Craster as the source of this death, mainly because he's not completely innocent. He could have done much more for Bannon if he cared to. Instead, he suggested a knife. And while John and Geo and others have gained some perspective about the differences of wildlings, that is not true of everyone. Not all of them can change lifelong prejudices, not in their mental and physical state, and it's such an easy way of uniting everyone against Craster and putting him on a different tier to themselves, and it clearly works in a little while. But not just yet, there's a last gasp of effort to do things properly, follow the rules, and resemble the Night's Watch they were when they left the wall. A funeral is normal, it connects back to the real, civilised world they've been trying to get back to, and it's almost seen as a boon. It's, I'm not sure if they've been doing this for everyone who's died since they arrived at Craster's, I'm not actually sure if anyone has died at Craster's yet, but certainly... Those two died on the fist and on the march weren't lucky enough to receive such rights, so the, the brothers are presented with a chance to bond. 
Dior goes with this. His name was Bannon, Lord Commander Mormont said, as the flames took him. He was a brave man, a good ranger. He came to us from... Where did he come from? Down White Harbour Way, someone called out. So unfortunately, it doesn't go well. It's a heartbreaking line on several levels. It speaks to these being nameless men, giving their lives for the realm and having no songs sung about them, just like those people we spoke about on the fist. Now, they aren't even having their own information remembered at their own funeral. It speaks to how many people have died in such a quick time, so many that Jill Mormont is having trouble differentiating them. It speaks to the atmosphere, which doesn't exactly inspire clear thinking, and it raises the tension, because clearly, Jill knows this is not going to help with the situation or endearing with the men. Another quote from this funeral. The worst thing was the smell, though. If it had been a foul, unpleasant smell, he might have stood it, but his burning brother smelled so much like roast pork that Sam's mouth began to water. On top of Jill's faux pas is the cruelties of Bannon smelling like food to a horde of starving men, and even Sam can admit that. This is bad enough on a physical level. We all know the smell of food would make us hungrier even when not starving, but the psychological effect is worse. This is a man, this is a brother, alive just a few minutes ago that they are now smelling and dreaming of eating. It can cause a lot of inner guilt and anguish, looking in at oneself and seeing how far you've really fallen. None of these men are biter. They know how cannibalism is one of the lowest ideas available to them. So to admit to themselves how tempting that smell is can inspire the feeling of being less than men. And if the rules about cannibalism are beginning to waver, why can't everything else? Hence, after a chapter of build-up and very clear explanation about why the worst would happen, the worst happens. And I'll admit, I forgot that the scene of this travesty is another feast. You know, such as it is, feast might be a bit generous. But it links it very clearly to another feast travesty still on its way. Clearly, Crest is glad to be saying goodbye and either wants to keep everyone happy until they're out of the door or wants one last display of him technically doing the right thing by feeding them with this, and again, air quotes, feast. Perhaps he is even trying to implant one last pleasant memory to these men about to leave the confines of guest right, but I doubt it. I think it's more Craster trying to save face one last time, despite the fact all he's really doing is providing a bit of beer and bread to match the meat that actually belongs to the crows anyway when they butcher their horses as well as sending a very clear message by sitting in the only chair and letting everyone have the benches or the floor. All things considered, we're now primed for something to set it all off, and in the end, it's bread. If only Hotby had been here to calm everyone down, and as gruesome as Clubfuck Carl is, he's not wrong. Two loaves of bread for 30-odd men isn't going to cut it, but this chapter has all been about how something so small can start something so massive. This is the final match on the wildfire, and up it goes. We can also see the safety class just coming on, coming undone as Carl and the others push further and further in terms of respect to Dior. Sam saw the old bear's face go red. Have you forgotten who I am? Sit, eat and be silent. That is a command. Knowing his authority is being tested, Dior tries to grab hold of the flaying rope that is his command. But it's too late. What can he even threaten these men with really? Making them more hungry or colder? I feel for Jewel here, as he surely feels that, that sliding feeling of mob mentality about to take over. He likely knows it's been coming. The command he's dedicated his life to is about to be ripped away. And it's just a terrible feeling, overall. No one spoke. No one moved. All eyes were on the Lord Commander and the big club-footed ranger, as the two of them stared at each other across the table. It seemed to Sam that Carl broke first, and was about to sit, though sullenly. So, and yet, despite what we just said, Jewel nearly pulled it off. In what would have been an outstanding display of authority and managerial skills, Sam notes that Carl does break, he does sit down and relent, and the disaster is almost averted. That's not to say Carl wouldn't have kicked off again two minutes later, or on the march to the wall the next day, but Dior deserves a huge amount of credit for nearly pulling it off. Unfortunately, 
Craster proves once and for all that he has zero idea of how to interact with other humans. With a social skill rating of zero, he ignores the clear signs of what could be happening here and chooses now to get angry and assert his manliness with an axe. Once Craster puts his heavy foot on the crack in the ice, the whole thing shatters. Technically, Craster draws his axe first, so I suppose he is the guest right breaker here and makes everyone else actors of self-defense. Unfortunately, no one is going to sit sifting through technicalities in this highly charged environment. There might have been a 1% chance of leaving it after the attack on Craster, but now that those safety class are long gone and it's all out in the open, Carl and the others may as well go for the food as well. Unhand her, Mormont took a step. I'll have your head for this, you... He twisted free of the old man's grasp, shoved the knife into Mormont's belly, and yanked it out again, all red, and then the world went mad. Thus... Dior Mormont finally does the right thing and dies while trying to protect one of Craster's victims. Shortly after, things become so savage that Sam almost seems to black out until a little bit later on. Let's take advantage of that gap and give a well-deserved nod to Dior Mormont. As I've said throughout this chapter and this project, Dior simply changed his mind too late. I stand by my earlier claims of his mistakes in game and clash, how he actively contributed to the fall of the Night's Watch and the ascension of the others how he allowed his own hubris and desperation for a final statement to overtake doing what was actually right. He's a man who made a, a lot of very costly mistakes, of which other people did the majority of paying. But having said all that, he does hold a special place in my heart, especially here in this chapter when he has turned the corner on so many issues. I still remain incredibly impressed by his control on the fist and how he nearly pulls it off here. It's only fair we highlight his achievements as well as his downfalls. Even with his last words, he tries to persuade Sam to live, to remember the main mission that Dior neglected, and he also reminds us that he is the father of Dior Mormont, and I feel bad for anyone who has to be related to Dior Mormont. So, farewell Dior, and thank you for all the talking points you've given me. Speaking of Dior, I think he appears in, uh, in Dior's thoughts, not only because that's natural for a father, but because he's combining his two big failures. Dior knows what his legacy is now, and what he's left the world. He thinks he's failed the watch, which is pretty true, and he thinks he screwed up with Jorah. That's true, I blame Jorah. So by getting them together, he perhaps hopes the name Mormont can be remembered as something greater in the future. It's a nice thought, but I don't think Book Jorah is he's simply not that guy. Another quote here. Gren had shouted and slapped him, and then he'd run away with Giant and Dolores Head and some others. So while we're talking everybody up, we have yet more evidence of Gren being the greatest hero that no one ever talks about. In the carnage, he's the only one who goes back and risks his life by trying to get Sam to come along. Maybe he failed, but at least he tried. Finally, the newest and most important chapter in Samuel Tarly's life begins, as two of the elder women are smart enough to see there's opportunity for escape, for free anyway. Dior Mormont might have been the primary father figure to Sam Tarly, but here, Sam takes his first steps to being a father himself. And though talking to Dior Mormont is the quest that Dior asked of Sam, the mission Sam immediately takes up is the one that Dior actually died for, the protection of an innocent woman. A final quote for this chapter. The boy's brothers, said the old woman on the left, Craster's sons. The white cold's rising out there, Crow. I can feel it in my bones. These poor old bones don't lie. They'll be here soon, the sons. So the raven combined with this generally creepy warning really has me wondering about Craster's sons and how they are going to be different when or if they are ever introduced. Let's just be glad that Sam, Gilly and the baby finally escaped this hellhole. And that is Sam 2. An incredibly important chapter, I'm sure you'll agree. Oh. There's an emotional one, isn't it? Mm. Let's move on then to IS-6. We've spent a long time wandering the riverlands with these brothers and their lack of banners. Far more than I remembered, and this chapter is clearly our reward. After the horror of the last chapter of Sam, this is generally remembered as one of the more awesome of the book. 
we get a great duel in a very fantasy type setting. We see the return of a fan favourite character, but I'd argue the most important part of this chapter is that we finally meet, or re-meet, Beric Dondarrion, a man whose legend and exploits have been on the periphery for nearly two whole books now. It's had so much build-up, and only now do we finally get the payoff. We begin with the Hollow Hill, a superbly memorable location for name alone, but beyond the name, we also get a wonderful description that tells us quite a lot. I see the emerging of the Brothers from the Shadows as a microcosm for what they've been doing all over the Riverlands, coming out of hiding places when they please, retreating into hidden paths and warrens that they can understand, but their enemies can't. And perhaps, maybe that's what the Children of the Forest actually did back in the day. Way, way more important is the constant mentions of the Red Fire and the White Weirwood Roots, because these two so rarely come into contact. Off the top of my head, the only time I can really remember fire and a weirwood being together is John's early chapter in The Clash of Kings, where he finds the remnants of a fire within the weirwood face. But that's not even a live fire, so this is something unique so far in A Song of Ice and Fire. Clearly, we can't ignore the hints of this being a mix of ice and fire, and their apparent ability to stand one another. Sorry, Massandra, and your philosophy. We'd guess that the rather rich, ritualistic fires of R'hllor are a recent addition to the decor, but the weirwoods are ancient and mystical, adding this to the list of old, important places that Aya has visited on her trip in this book. Perhaps she'll be the one to round off the set and eventually visit the Isle of Faces on her return. We would welcome her, and after all, she is a good one for faces, so that makes sense. The dangling roots of weirwood trees will put re-readers in the mind of Blood Raven's Cave and Bran's eventual destination. But as if that's not enough, George double downs with this. In one place on the far side of the fire, the roots formed a kind of stairway up to a hollow in the earth, where a man sat almost lost in a tangle of weirwood. That clearly puts us in the mind of the mysterious three-eyed crow, and it might even relate back to uh, Bran Free from Game of Thrones, I'd have to go and check. It isn't he we get, in, in terms of Bloodraven, and we're denied the pleasure of seeing within this tangle for now, but instead we get a poor man's version, in terms of visions and mysteries, as we get to the first of our three reintroductions of this chapter, when Forrest of Mere reappears. That can't be Forrest of Mere. I remembered the Red Priest as fat, with a smooth face and a shiny bold head. This man had a droopy face and a full head of shaggy hair. A few chapters ago, I and Gendry took the time to remember Forrest as they once knew him, so this new physical form is all the more outstanding to us. The second reintroduction comes quickly with Sandok again, who puts Aya's thoughts to words about how Forrest has changed. The man himself tells us it is not merely physical, but spiritual, as Forrest has not only refound his faith, but excelled in it, making the reader wonder if this is something similar to the Fire Ladder Man we saw in Calf. Personally, I like Forrest's own hints that King's Landing itself was a corruptive place that robbed him of faith, faith and purpose. I can certainly attest to it being bad, at any rate. Given this fantasy-based mystical start we're off to in this chapter, leave it to Sandor again to bring everybody down and point out the more realistic problems, such as how much success can the Brotherhood really be having if they're still hiding underground in a muddy hill? The idea of hiding, running, or generally keeping away from a fight is obviously heavily still on, on Sandor's mind, given what happened to him on the Blackwater. It's not Forrest that answers and defends the Brotherhood, but the main man himself. As our direction is guided back to that tangle of roots to reveal Beric, I don't need screen time to be effective, Dondarian. I don't think we really get an explanation of why Beric likes to sit in these weird roots. I don't think he's getting any kind of visions or that the roots help with the healing at all. Perhaps he believes they can assist with recovering the memories he has lost. And Beric's actual response to Sandor isn't anything different than what we've already got from Harwin. The Brotherhood don't care about being in a hill. They don't care about material gains other than the necessary. They are fighting because together they found a unified goal, even better than that added Eddard Stark originally gave them. Specifically, he focuses on all the different types of men who have joined up, and how they have volunteered to do so when others have fallen, making them as cyclical as their leader. Beric outlines how this is a group unlike any other, 
one that refuses to play the same game as the others, and again has a much higher purpose that serves both them and the ones always ignored otherwise, the small folk. They are doing the job kings and knights are actually supposed to do. They are the realm. Much more interesting to me is the incredible description we get of Beric's much-changed form, one that makes Forrest's change seem tiny in comparison. Here's a few quotes. The scarecrow of a man. He wore a ragged black cloak, speckled with stars and an iron breastplate, dinted by a hundred battles. A thicket of red gold hair hid most of his face, save for a bold spot above his left ear where his head had been smashed in. One of his eyes was gone, I saw, the flesh about the socket scarred and puckered, and he had a dark black ring all around his neck. Compare that to Sansa's, or poor Jane's, original descriptions way back when, and the message here is clear. All these wonderful feats we've heard of throughout this and the last book, the miraculous escapes or even the possibility of something more, this constant presence of Beric Dondarrion as the fawn in the lion's paws in the Riverlands isn't glorious, it isn't clean or fun magic, it's costly and it's dark. First we get all these injuries, telling a story of reminders about how much Beric has actually done, with the caveat that obviously it takes a hell of a lot to survive all that, though his chest wound is actually kept secret for now, leading to what will happen at the end of this chapter. We also find he's part of the Eye Patch Club, keeping that earlier connection with Bloodraven. And Euron. Maybe Bran should start wearing safety goggles from now on. While Ira is busy noting these marks, Sandor is busy ignoring them and trying to rile up Beric and the others. Calling them brave companions is obviously a huge no-no, given what we've been told about what they've been doing in the Riverlands. It's like calling Wedge Antilles a stormtrooper. Clearly, the mothers are the exact opposite of everything the Brotherhood stand for. For the more overall argument, Sandor correctly points out that Robert was a drunk who would have been interested in none of this aside from the fighting, and perhaps a return to the Peach. More to the point, he's long dead, meaning the Brotherhood now served Joffrey. Beric is quick to deny that, wouldn't you be? By again stating that the Brotherhood served the ideals left by Robert, not the throne itself. And we've spoken in the past about how Robert is really just a figurehead to the Brotherhood, rather than a person to actually get behind. As for Sandor himself, he would be probably talking this way anyway, but we have to remember his own emotional state. His world came crashing down in the flames of the black water, forcing him to abandon the considerable position he had forced for himself, as well as the inner turmoil of choosing to run. There is the incident with Sansa on top of that, and the fact he doesn't have many options at this moment. While he's about to find his next scheme in Aya, currently, Sandor doesn't have anything in his life save a horse he's fond of, especially as the Brotherhood have just relieved him of the gold he won in the tourney that both Beric and Forrest took part in. To cheer Sandor up, he gets some extended time to decry knighthood and its hypocrisy, which we know he always enjoys. Somewhere within Sandor is still his desire to become a knight from his childhood. That want is associated with paying a horrible price, as well as giving up any sense of honesty to oneself or non-hypocrisy. So I don't think Sandor thinks it's fair that Beric makes all these people knights, that they can just become knights when he paid so dearly merely for the desire to be one. On the other side, much like in Clash, Sandor is desperate to prove he's the one without bullshit. While we can see the kind of effect Barrett's constant knighting can have on someone who could otherwise have no hope of reaching such, see Gendry and what he does in Feast, Sander wants to impress its all empty gestures and that he is on the same moral level as them in truth. If we've learned anything about Sandor, is that he hates others feeling that they are better than him. He believes all these men to be liars and murderers. And they do and will murder men, impossibly outnumbered, etc. So he does have a point, and therefore no different than him. Already having his fill of being preached to, Sandor challenges the Brotherhood to get on with whatever they are going to do with him, changing the subject to justice. We discussed this at length in Aya's previous chapter, when justice meant crow cages and a slow death. We'll return to it in the future, when Lady Stoneheart implements some very different procedures, but for now, we have the core justice system for the Brotherhood without banners, even if we only see this one instance of it. 
The idea of trial and quick or noble deaths is an obvious element to stave off simply becoming a different sort of bloody mummers. It's a way to prove they are still noble, they are still better than these armies and broken men perpetrating war crimes all over the place. As we've already seen, not every member of the Brotherhood agrees with Beric on this subject, but this is Beric trying to keep the Lannisters or other soldiers as the evil ones and his group as the relievers, so this is all pretty critical. Speaking of Lannisters and the war crimes that Tywin unleashed so long ago, we can see how the members react to the news of Shera and Mummers Ford and how passionate they are about these crimes being evil. Bear in mind, it is the Huntsman declaring these, so we really know his feelings on the subject. It shows it's a clever move to keep the group together by Beric. Not only does the trial by combat keep them on the right side of honour and morality, and we will see what happens to them when they abandon that under Lady Stoneheart, but it still provides the satisfaction of seeing the hated Lannisters and criminals die. Still, they falter at the first hurdle of accusations, and it seems like the Brotherhood are searching for someone to take their frustrations and bloodlust out on, but may have missed the mark. While Sandor again is clearly linked to House Lannister, not only has he recently chosen to abandon them, he very clearly isn't Gregor and isn't guilty of, the, of his brother's crimes in this war or the last one. Also note that Sandor doesn't rely on the fact that he's abandoned or that he hates Gregor as a reason to get off. He's far too proud for that and would never even think of opening up that kind of vulnerability, even if it means his life. Here he reached what has always been one of my favourite scenes in all of Song of Ice and Fire and one of the least discussed, the Brotherhood joining together to name the victims of the war in the Riverlands. Who did I murder? Lord Lothar Mallory and Sir Gladden Wilde, said Harwin. My brothers Lister and Lennox, declared Jack be lucky. Goodman Beck and Mudge the Miller's son from Donalwood, an old woman called from the shadows. Merriman's widow, who loves so sweet, added Greenbeard. Them Septons at Sludgy Pond. Sir Adry Charlton, his squire Lucas Root. Every man, woman and child in Fieldstone and Mousedown Mill. Lord and Lady Deddings, that was so rich. Tom Sevenstrings took up the count. Aline of Winterfell, Joff Quickbow, Little Matt and his sister Randa, Anvil Rhine, Sir Ormond, Sir Dudley, Pate of Moray, Pate of Lancewood, Old Pate and Pate of Sherman's Grove, Blind Wild the Whitler, Goodmouth Murray, Mary the Whore, Becca the Baker, Sir Raymond Darry, Lord Darry, Young Lord Darry, The Bastard of Bracken, Fletcher Will, Harsley, Good Wife Nolla. It's clearly heart-hitting, for all we see through the eyes of Aya, Jamie, Brienne and others of the small folk having been decimated and abused throughout this war, we really get nothing that compares to this, the summarisation of all these people who have suffered and lost their lives. The best thing about it is that in traditional Brotherhood form, the names aren't even given in any sequence of importance. All these people are as important as each other. We have lords, squires, knights, scepters, old people, young people, people with the same names, people that we know, and those we will never hear of again. And for us personally, Tom names Aline of Winterfell to really tug on our heartstrings. This scene is so effective, even Sandor again can't bear it. Though he'd deny it to his last, I do generally think these lists make Sandor uncomfortable, possibly because he's wondering how many Gregor himself is responsible for. Either way, Sandor brings up an argument that is both true and untrue. He is correct in the idea that you can't sentence anyone. He is correct in the idea that you can't just sentence anyone guilty of serving Lannisters without becoming Roose Bolton at Harrenhal. Then again, we know he's skating on thin ice because he has spent years enacting any atrocity Joffrey has asked of him, and I'm convinced there's plenty we never got to hear of. More to the point, he's willingly fought to keep Joffrey in power. It's a very similar argument from Sansa's wedding chapter. Sandor again knows what Joffrey is better than almost anyone, but he's still protected and fought for him. But then, isn't that a cookie-cutter argument? And does it matter now if Sandor chose to abandon? Perhaps it wouldn't, if I hadn't been present to remind us of one of the first and cruelest crimes in the series. The considerable momentum that Sandor had just built up in his argument evaporates rather quickly when Aya lays Micah at his feet, because it really ticks all the boxes the Brotherhood looked for. Micah was a child, was clearly an innocent, and even if he did try and harm Joffrey, he didn't try to defend himself with the Hound. 
and saying, because I was told to, really doesn't fly after the horrors of the war. As we said way back when, Michael was the first true victim in the Riverlands. It still ends up with Beric declaring they don't know the truth of the matter. If Aya doesn't step up here, I'm not totally sure they can even force the trial by combat. And we can clearly see from her emotion that Micah's death isn't something Aya will ever move past. She still blames herself to some degree. Horrible as it is to relive, it's her one chance for justice and maybe closure. Naturally, Sandor again knows that the trial by combat falls right into his wheelhouse, so he hunts for some caveat like Beric being allowed armour where he is not. And that leads to Beric revealing his final scar. Lord Beric's ribs were outlined starkly beneath his skin. A puckered crater scarred his breast just above his left nipple, and when he turned to call for sword and shield, Aya saw a matching scar upon his back. A lance went through him. George is really testing Aya and Aya's faith about whether the tales told could be possibly true, and what that means for this trial. The removing of his breastplate and his insistence to be the one to fight also speaks to the noble, everyone is equal nature of Beric as a leader. It's very neddish. Possibly escaping both the attentions of Aya and Sandor is that this is as much a religious ceremony as one based on justice. But we shall see that return in a moment, with Forrest's chanting and in a much more obvious signal, when Rulor's mascot, fire itself, envelopes Beric's sword. Unsmiling, Lord Beric laid the edge of his longsword against the palm of his left hand and drew it slowly down. Blood ran dark from the gash he made and washed over the steel, and then the sword took fire. This is a pretty major moment, the largest evidence of Rulor since we went beneath Storm's End. We have already detailed in the past how Forrest used to achieve this with wildfire, and that's obviously not what's going on here unless Beric's veins are unseen green. This is also designed to make first-time readers think a bit, because so far we've only seen Rallor used in the hands of Melisandre, whom we still believe to be pretty evil at the time. Now we have someone who is very clearly a hero touting the fire, so is Rallor inherently evil, does it matter who is wielding his power, or is it vastly more complex than that? There's a bunch more questions to consider, such as what this means to the story of Azor High what it is about Beric's blood that allows this, how did Forrest stumble upon it, but before we have time to think, the focus returns to Sandor, because he's just seen his worst nightmare. Now there's wildfire on a sword, brilliant, as if things couldn't get worse. Maybe Sandor's just telling himself over and over that it's, it's just wildfire, and not, like, something worse. With Beric being described as an essential angel of death, the duel begins. The flaming sword leapt up to meet the cold one, long streamers of fire trailing in its wake, like the ribbons the Hound had spoken of. Steel rang on steel. George has described steel on steel as a song before, and now we have a song of hot on cold. Or maybe... Well, I'm sure you know the rest. Looking like the closest thing Westeros has to a Jedi, Beric uses Sandor's great weakness against him, essentially trapping his foe between his sword or the flame pit. Aya and the reader start to believe this fight is only going to go one way, especially when the fire takes Sandor's shield. Here, the Hound has to hack away at the symbol of his own house, the one that burned him in the first place. We'll find out about the physical damage this does to him in a moment, but consider this is the absolutely the worst thing that could happen to Sandor again, a thing that will push him to make a decision, live or die. Smooth as summer silk, Lord Beric stood close to make an end of the man before him. The hound gave a rasping scream, raised his sword in both hands, and brought it crashing down with all his strength. Lord Beric blocked the cut easily. No, I shrieked, but the burning sword snapped in two, and the hound's cold steel ploughed into Lord Beric's flesh where his shoulder joined his neck and clove him clean down to the breastbone. The blood came rushing out in a hot black gush. Again, we are forced to question. Did Sandor win because of divine intervention, as the Brotherhood will believe, or did Sandor find an inner strength to finally defeat his old enemy of fire and earn his freedom? Given that the sword snaps, it also makes us rethink all we've seen in this chapter. Was it really just a trick after all? The immediate aftermath of the duel also gives clear signs. Firstly, the fact that Aya was about to experience her first win in 
I don't know, a year or more, and she desperately needed this justice for her guilt and pain over Micah. The ripping away of this built-up relief is enough that she chooses to take justice into her own hands, signalling her future plot to come. But she's brought up short by a huge man whose entire identity is made up of his strength, crying like a baby, as she puts it. Is this the first time Sandor Clegane has ever said please? Possibly. Either way, it's a very clear replica of the event that changed his life as a boy. So that's two huge life events in a little over half a book. Can it be a rebirth, a sign of things to come? Maybe, but sure as hell not straight away as he shows here. I did, his whole face twisted. I rode him down and cut him in half and laughed. I watched them beat your sister bloody too, watched them cut your father's head off. In retrospect, this seems very similar to Tyrion when he's pushed beyond the edge at the end of this book, although Sandor is technically being 100% truthful. He wants a reaction. He wants to be hated because it makes him feel more powerful than the weakness he felt two seconds ago. It's George faking at his finest, because for a second, it seems that this is all for nothing. Justice slash law failed. Sandor has learned nothing. I gets no emotional relief. All until one of the best finishing lines in the series. He has, said a voice scarce stronger than a whisper. When Aya turned, Lord Beric Dondarrion was standing behind her, his bloody hand clutching Forrest by the shoulder. Boom, mic drop, it was worth it after all. And that is obviously a brilliant chapter ending, and we can move on now to our third chapter of the day, Catelyn 4. This chapter opens with one of the cooler funeral rites in all of Westeros, or maybe I'm just a big fan of rivers. As we've said in a few recent chapters, it's an appropriate time for Hoster to pass, given that we've had some nods to his past of late. I think as he's got to my note on how this relates to Lysa as well. There's also this effort to make Hoster be remembered as the man he once was, instead of the sickly little thing he became. This part is much more in common with all funeral practices, but given that we've only ever seen Hoster as sickly, whilst hearing so much of his past, it makes a lot of sense. We can see the lengths the Tullys go to, pre to present this image, with a rippling cloak and a fish-encrusted great helm. It's part doing his memory honour, part giving them a final strong image to remember, part likely superstition about the afterlife, and maybe even part trying to project the image of strong Tullys to the assembled lords. They are pretty thin on the ground for a ruling family, after all. Oh, and it's part practicality to make sure Hoster actually sinks beneath the waterline. It is interesting that both this funeral and the one in Sam 2, the Seven is barely mentioned at all aside from having seven men push the boat out. And we don't see a lot of official funerals, but you'd think we'd see more of the Seven involved. That makes a lot more sense up in the wall given the way that religion has to be kind of left behind. But down here in the near centre of the realm, it's odd that they don't take a, a larger part in proceedings like they do for Tyrant's funeral. Although I guess that's a, a state funeral, but then this is kind of a state funeral. Hmm, a lot to think about. Though Catelyn knew it was coming, though she ultimately did have the chance to come home and say goodbye, we'd be fools to ignore the great emotional toll this takes on her soul. True, this death was inevitable, regardless of the war or of politics, but still a part of the horror slide Catelyn's still making her way down in Storm of Swords. I think the worst of it is she's now lost someone from every generation. She believes she's lost Bran, Rickon and likely Aya as her children. She's lost Ned as her equal and her spouse. Now she's lost her father. Death is coming from every direction and every tear. It seems inescapable, and obviously that feeling is going to get worse. Here's the first quote for this chapter. Catelyn watched from the battlements, waiting and watching, as she had waited and watched so many times before. With Foster gone, his children are left to fill their specific roles, putting me in mind of how Jamie and Cersei struggled to do so after Tywin's death. For Catelyn, that is returning to her childhood spot or pastime of being the Watcher, watching for one final time. For Edmure, it is now stepping into the shoes of a lord, while also dealing with his pain of losing a parent. I really like the passage on Edmure's difficulties father Arrow, because in this ultimately machismo world, 
Edmure had the strength to cry open tears and express his pain before, with a little help from a, a drink or two. While Edmure's missing of that arrow is framed as, as a more comic relief moment in the show, I think here in the book is a sign of Edmure struggling with a really rough time. He has been Lord Edmure, in effect, for a while now, so I don't think it's stage fright, but more a son missing his father. Also note that Brynden is not dismissive of Edmure's efforts as he is in the show. Indeed, it seems that it connects him to his nephew, as he tells Catelyn of how Hoster did the same in his youth. Either way, Edmure now has to shut out his feelings and get on with playing the Lord, and it's a real shame he doesn't get to talk to Brynden at this moment, as he could probably really do with the kind words. As it is, responsibilities weighing heavy aren't going to be restricted to just Edmure in this chapter. P.S. Brynden comes and holds Catelyn's hands when Edmure moves away. Brynden is the best, confirmed. And Z's got to my note on uh, these quotes about Rob just feeling worse and worse and getting hammered down again and again. And it, it just goes from worse to worse, to be honest. As for this chapter specifically, we are made to painfully watch as Rob simply appears lost. In terms of these constant blows, the first two are split down the middle as something Rob has to tell his mother and something that comes as a surprise. First is Duskendale, and that's the shock. This happens kind of, uh, this is remembered in the chapter. But it obviously contributes to the idea of everything just spiralling out of Rob's control and making no sense at all. Rob knows he didn't order Duskendale, he knows there's no reason for it, and he knows what it means. It erodes his confidence in his men and in his commanders, in his campaign, and ultimately in himself as a military leader, quite unfairly. Unfortunately, this is a rather large part of the horror slide, as without it there's a real chance the Red Redding goes down differently. While it's very hard to see first time round, there's an awful lot of preparation that Walder, Tywin and Roos have to put in to make this work, and Duskendale was one of those factors. As Rob notes, an entire third of his foot is gone, so it suddenly seems a lot easier to topple him, doesn't it? The second blow is the news of Sansa and Tyrion, and this one Rob knows first, giving him time to fixate, fixate upon what could have been. Whilst reflection is an important skill for a leader, second guessing can be deaf to leadership, and that's all this is. Pure second guessing. He should have done this, he should have done that. It all contributes to the ideas of the idea of holes appearing all throughout Rob's reign, some he's poking himself as he continues to be overly hard on himself. We also note that Rob's mind is actually as sharp as ever. In both cases, it identifies the bottom line immediately. With Duskendale, he immediately knows that to try such an attack was foolish and pointless. With Sansa, he knows that the Lannisters are hoping to gain the North through her claim. If only he was in the type of mindset to congratulate himself on such perception. Clearly, this second piece of news is an even worse blow for Catelyn herself, on two counts. The first is the pure fact that she knows her pre-teen daughter has been forced into a marriage she doesn't want, has had to struggle through all that horror alone, and Catelyn likely assumes she's also been made to go through a bedding ceremony and consummation, alone, frightened and without her mother's guiding hand, or anyone else's. Catelyn already has to watch one child suffer in front of her, now she has to imagine another, many miles away. The second count is the removal of Catelyn's one crutch of hope. All through this book she's based everything on the, and if we're being kind, fanciful hope that Jamie will get through and persuade the Lannisters to trade Sansa back. She's placed so much of herself in it, risked everything for it, and given what has happened as a result of Rickard, Karstark, etc., the idea that it's failed, on top of it meaning Sansa won't be returned to her, means her gamble didn't pay off. She disobeyed Rob for nothing, the two captive boys died for nothing, the evils of the Karstarks happened for nothing. Eventually, it comes down to the fact that distance and lack of communications mean this kind of deal is all but impossible. The irony is Jamie and Brienne don't even know of the wedding that ends their oath prematurely, or to take another view, it's that none of this was actually Tyrion's idea, no matter what Catelyn and Rob immediately think. Indeed, the blow hits so hard it has Catelyn rethinking the entire war. Here's a quote. Wars not need be fought until the last drop of blood. Even she could hear the desperation in her voice. 
You would not be the first king to bend the knee, nor even the first Stark. His mouth tightened. No, never. She mentions that Sansa will never be allowed to leave, meaning Rob is the one single point of focus in her life now. If surrender means increased chances of survival for him, surrender it is. We can see how off base she is at this moment, anyway, as she makes a rare political miscasting when she suggests that Ironborn are to be a worse problem than the Lannisters, when we actually know they are already desperate to abandon the North in truth. The reviving of the argument about freeing Jaime means both mother and son lash out slightly with all these feelings they were forced to move on from previously, but Rob's reaction to Catelyn's suggestion is firm and concrete. Did Aegon kill Torrin's father? He pulled his hand from hers. Never, I said. The explanation for this line of thinking was actually given to us before, when Rob discussed why he couldn't make peace of the Karstark sons, the North remembers, and again, Rob is trapped by things outside his control. But is it really trapped if the option doesn't want to be taken? Because even if the North didn't remember, even if it was possible and there were no bad after effects, can you actually imagine a Rob Stark who'd bend the knee or shake the hands of a family who tried to murder his brother, stole his sisters and beheaded Eddard Stark? Because I can't. Rob Stark remembers and he doesn't forgive. This, undoubtedly, is personal. All in all, it's just tough to see Catelyn and Rob struggle together like this, and the floor beneath their feet gets removed one tile at a time. But it's okay, because here's some phrase to make everybody's day feel better. Phrase are another welcome sight, but particularly after such an emotional moment with the funeral. So it's unsurprising that Edmure reacts with the rage he did at the beginning of the chapter, whilst Catelyn returned to her political perceptivity by noting that Edmure is actually correct. Walder Frey has sent these specific phrase in Lame Lothar and Black Walder, just to twist the knife and dare the Tullys to speak out against him further, knowing the situation he holds them in. Having said that, there's clearly more thought gone into it than that, in that there's something of a good cop, bad cop thing going on with Black Walder and Lame Lothar. Black Walder is gruff, rude, straight to the point. Lame Lothar is something close to the twins version of Varys, all courtesies and gentle words. Each is designed to make the other stand out that much more. In this way, I think we're basically seeing the grown-up version of Big and Little Walder up at Winterfell. Certainly, this is going to be confirmed later in Merritt's epilogue, where Lothar is revealed to be a truly sadistic man who planned with Roose Botwin down to the songs that would be played. Meanwhile, Black Walder is responsible for the slaughter of hundreds and thousands of men out in the camp, and we're talking about the Red Wedding here. Personally, I believe my hackles are up enough about the phrase to never trust lame Lothar or see him as any less dangerous, but I can definitely see how George goes for that angle. Walder and Walder, yes, but they are presently at the Dreadfort, my lady. I grieve to tell you this, but there has been a battle. Winterfell is burned. Because we can't go more than a page or two in this chapter without receiving more bad news, this next turn of the horror slide comes straight from the mouth of Lothar Frey, again hinting at his being sadistic. There's no doubt in my mind he secretly enjoys bringing news of Winterfell right after Hoster's funeral and before negotiations take place, as well as the added benefit of putting Rob off his feet for the talks. Plus, I believe there's some clear symbolism here. Lame Lothar is essentially telling Rob he's already failed. His mission of going home and saving his castle has ended before it's begun. He's king of nothing. On top of that, the fact that the Walders are still up north and have survived seems to be a message that Freys will live while Starks will die. Again, Rob proves he is his mother's son when he instantly sees beyond the words that paint him as a failure and begins asking questions that don't quite link up, such as Ramsay all of a sudden becoming the saviour of the north instead of the monster Rob had already heard about. Having said that, both Rob and Catelyn do miss some hints about what's going on, such as why the Freys know this first, and all information has been directed to the twins instead of Riverrun. And not picked up before, but the connection between Dreadfort and twins is ultimately brazen here. When the conversation gets to the task at hand, we really see the Lothar Walder tag team come into effect. Once Edmure starts second-guessing and trying to make his own caveats, Black Walder puts the hammer down and forces the Tully slash Starks to return to Lothar's nicer nature and original author. Hence, the position is put in place, 
that the Tully Starks have no other options, meaning that Catelyn's worries about Rob having to appear in person are not officially addressed at the negotiating table. Lothar has planned it perfectly that Rob cannot refuse to come without the whole thing coming down. Once the Fraser's draw, we see yet more evidence of how difficult it is for Edmure to mix both his grieving for his father with his first day on the job. Clearly, he is acting out a bit here and wanting to put his stamp down as a man in control of his bannerman, combined with the fact that he's been unable to control his father's death. Remember, Edmure has actually already agreed to this deal, so his fixation on choosing and getting a pretty bride is really just him wanting to be asked or have some say about what's going on here. His own struggles blind him to the larger problems, but his elder Tullys and younger Stark do the thinking for him. Indeed, Rob is smart enough to know harsh words are only going to push Edmure further into despair. In fact, we get the triple team of wise words, first Brynden, then Rob, then Catelyn putting the nail in the coffin with this. I have no more wish to suffer Walderfrey's insults and complaints than you do, brother, but I see little choice here. Without this wedding, Rob's cause is lost. Edmure, we must accept. And Edmure accepts again. And that is that for Catelyn 4 today, and we close the scene at River Run. Okay, that's uh, three chapters down, two to go, so I'm going to take a very quick break here just to give some shout-outs. Of course, the main one is always to our lovely patrons, like I mentioned earlier. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support and generosity, and we always love hearing from you. So, like I say, new sign-ups keep coming in. That's great news, and we hope we can gain more and make it worth your while. But more specifically today, uh, there's two things I want to mention. First is something I mentioned before, and that's a song of madness. Hashtag a song of madness from the boys down at Davos Fingers, our good old friends and previous guests. Now, depending on when you're listening to this, if you're a patron and listening to it on Monday, then I'm talking about tomorrow. If you're listening on the public relief, then Tuesday, the 3rd of March, I think I've got that right, is when a song of madness begins, and the whole fandom rises up in revolt and revolution and arguing and talking and chatting and much fun is had by all. If you're not aware, it's kind of like a, a bracket deal where the boys lay out basically one-on-one matchups. I think it's four a day, if I'm remembering correctly. And um, yeah, we go all the way through all these characters until we end up with a eventual champion. I believe I am correct in saying Aya is at least last year's winner. I think she might have won multiple times. I'm sure most of you are already aware of this, but if you're not and you want to get involved, it inspires some great discussion. There's just a really good uh, sense of community and the fandom coming together. And as the Isle of Faces is all about that, we'd like to endorse it as much as possible. So please go to Twitter, look to Davos Fingers, or just search the hashtag A Song of Madness and you will see it coming up a lot tomorrow and in the weeks to come. I personally last year chose to make the maybe dubious choice of having a different set of criteria each day because this is the thing. The boys don't put any... Um, any limits they're not saying which is the best character who would win in a fight or anything like that it's completely up to you to click your vote on on who you want and i decided to do things like who would be the best pilot who would you want at a birthday party and uh, who would make the best cheesecake and stuff like that and i've decided i shall do so again and uh, i've got some ideas don't worry i've got a notebook next to me of ideas i might also indulge in some serious discussion here and there perhaps but either way there's plenty of that coming from all sources so please do uh, make sure you check that out second on the, the shout out list is another obviously community fandom driven thing that's ice on Firecon, which is a, a really again big thing in the community i'm sure you've already know about it and seen about it on twitter and everything i believe it's april this year and there's people you all know people i've had on the show and and uh shout out regularly having uh, panels and stuff like that and just people 
wandering around and uh, doing cool stuff so if you are unlike me and that's a possibility for you I, I encourage you to go and have a look and make the most of it because there's always good stuff and I'm always jealous every year that I live with this ocean between us even though actually in all fairness I've had a lot of people asking if I will be uh, going this year and and saying that they'd like to see me there so that's lovely and thank you all for people who have said that maybe one day I'm still trying to build my raft uh, I need a sail I don't think I can paddle across the Atlantic but one day I will be there but for you guys out there that might be a possibility uh, I would recommend going on Twitter at ice and firecon and just have a look through the details there there's you know ticket prices and events and stuff like that and it's it's organized by people from the fandom and it's really uh, really important our good friend Eliza Narba Chloe from Girls Can Can she puts a lot of effort into it so we'd love it if you could support that in any way possible and yeah just go and have a look and share because someone you know might be able to go and have fun so to all those who are going or thinking of going I hope you have fun stay safe and I will come for you eventually okay that's the shout outs today let's get back onto it because I am aware this is a very long podcast already and we have two chapters still to go two important chapters so let's get back to it. Let's head back in with Davos 4. Davos 4 is if we want to look at the connections spreading into the future and how they all tie back to this moment, one of the most important chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. Without it, the fortunes of the Wall, the North and perhaps all of mankind completely change. Indeed, if you want to buy into Melisandre's pitch in the later part of the chapter, it also changes the entire fortunes of House Greyjoy, Lannister, Stark and Tully. How much you want to buy into that idea is up to you, but before we enter the stadium of great houses and the, ultra en- and the ultimate enemy, we begin in a dark cell. And one of the first acts we see is Axel Florent being really mean. <laughs> really mean is a nice way of putting it. He's a dick. He takes away the torch from his brother as he lets Davos out of the cell. So not only does this act warn us that on some level, Axel is going to be wor- a worse person than the former definitely villainous Melisandre will be, but it goes to show that Axel is a cruel man who is willing to cause his brother extra pain merely because he can. And Axel cannot even hide behind his newfound religion, as Alistair doesn't make the mistake of saying gods until after Axel is actually commanded for him to be left in shadow. Incidentally, do we think Alistair is ever given the gift of light again? We are still a fair way off from Stannis departing and Alistair's eventual burning. So did he just spend all of his time in shadow before everything got really, really bright and hot on the day of his death? I also quite enjoy the idea that both of these brothers are essentially the same. Neither of them actually believe in the law, but claim, or claimed, signing up because it furthers their aspirations. Axel is just a little bit better at sticking with it. Before we have time to contemplate what it might mean for Davos that he's being, um, that he's being brought up from the cells, and I have seen people mention that on first read they thought Axel was taking the torch as a sign it's about to be used to light Davos's pyre, we are treated to one of the more blatant hello, I am a villain moments we ever get as Axel dares to dangle our beloved Davos over the side of a bridge whilst he outlines his own terrible plan. Moustache twirling, begin. Were it my choice, I would burn you with my brother Alistair, he told Davos. You are both traitors. So at least at the very first we find out Davos isn't going to be burned, not straight away anyway, even if it's not such good news for Alistair. Axel next tries to claim that it is his religious enthusiasm that has shown him what to do and he must be besides Stannis to ensure victory. Personally, I believe that Axel doesn't even believe his own words and simply knows this is the access code to stay in favour with Melisandre, Solis and keep his position or even advance it. The opposite is possible, that Axel genuinely is all in on the Red God, but I think it's pretty clear that he either saw nothing in the flames and made it up, or is so deluded he just so happens to believe what he saw exactly lines up with what he wants. 
For example, he's clearly wrong about being made Stannis' hand, even if the rest of his visions are up for discussion. Regardless of the cause, he is clearly more loyal than his brother ever was, even though I'd still argue this is only because he sees gain out of doing so. It's critical we get all this here, before Davos sees the promotion, because it hints what it could have been if Davos wasn't named, or if he were any lesser a man. What Davos will go on to show us is that it isn't blind loyalty that makes him such a good hand, it's the fact he uses that loyalty to do the right thing, because it will keep Stannis on the side of good rather than evil. Axel is, when it comes down to it, a yes-man, who will always champion the worst choice. We'll find out in a second, but however loyal he is to Stannis, his becoming hand, minus Davos's good soul, would have been a disastrous to everyone, including Stannis. He also lets slip that Axel needs Davos, telling us he is not as powerful in Dragonstone as he would like us to believe. He is far from the shoulder mirror to Melisandre that Davos will become. All of this serves as a reaffirmation to Davos's character. Again, as we will find out in a second, because even with this man who's threatening him with a deadly accident, and certainly has power enough to do that, Davos stays true to Stannis even at the risk of his life. Which makes it a good time to finally return to Stannis, a man we haven't seen for over half a book, a man who hasn't actually appeared on page since halfway through Clash of Kings, I believe, and it makes for quite a sight. His eyes were blue pits lost in deep hollows, and the shape of a skull could be seen beneath his face. This seems so deeply connected to the vision we had of Beric a few chapters back, made even more poignant by the fact that both have a close buddy that brings them to R'hllor. Even his crown seemed too large for his head. And this one puts me in mind of Catelyn's recent descriptions of Rob being a king penned in and frustrated, just going to show Rob's problems aren't merely because of his age. Still, in one of the more heartwarming notes of the chapter, Stannis actually smiles when he sees his old friend Davos. I think this description of Stannis puts us on the wrong foot slightly, because although Stannis is a man very much suffering from defeat and having the effects of that come out physically, he is still determined, he is still made of iron, he is still acting like a king. So far in this book, we've heard from several sources that he's been almost cowed by Melisandre or the Queen's men, but it simply isn't true. Axel can't burn Davos outright, because Stannis still has the say-so. Melisandre can't do what she wants with Edric, because Stannis still has the say-so. Dragonstone is still in his command, because he says so. Perhaps realising his slip smile is terribly off-brand for him, Stannis returns to the much more familiar territory of tough questions. This one about treason. Again, we're made to wonder if Davos has only been dragged up for a sentencing, and again we get another example of Davos remaining true despite potentially meaning death for himself when he answers Stannis. I like to think the king is keeping a little mental checklist of things Davos has to say in order to get the promotion. And that's check one right there. The subject is also a nice little note as the discussion on how to deal with traitor or wrongdoers is a clear callback to the meeting that first forged their friendship back at Storm's End. When it becomes clear that Stannis is actually speaking about Alistair Florent, we get a little bit of a repeat from the previous Davos chapter and Alistair's foolish, selfish crimes. Indeed, we already know that Davos agreed that Alistair had truly messed up, yet he still finds himself semi-fighting his corner, again at great personal risk to his own health, because he feels empathy for the man crying in the darkness beneath them. This is as much a barometer for, for Davos versus Axel as anything. Davos does not deal in absolutes. He can know Alistair is wrong and yet still feel compassion for his fellow man, even if that particular hope is doomed in the wake of Stannis Baratheon. We don't need to look at Stannis' reasoning too closely here, because it lines up pretty nicely with our own reasoning last time out. So the deal is struck in regards to the one Florent brother, we'd best return to the other. Noting that aiming for peace was his brother's downfall, Axel goes the other way and champions fighting on as a way to remain on the larger board of Westeros and to keep morale up amongst the men. If we're being fair, those are not bad ideas. If Stannis ever hopes to win allies or alliances with anyone in Westeros, he has to be seen as a player on the board, something forever sitting on Dragonstone will not accomplish. In the same way, having an objective, and maybe an easy victory, will certainly rouse the men, but that's about as far as Axel gets in the way of good ideas. 
If he had selected a target belonging to the side they are actually at war against, it would have made a whole bunch more sense. As it is, he selects Claw Isle under the guise of punishing House Celtigar for going over to Joffrey after being captured in the battle. To me, this tells us that Axel has miscalculated Stannis' thoughts on traitors and loyalty, and that he was hoping to expose that need for loyalty with power instead of Robert's charm, so they could go and pick on a kid half his size or less. Clearly, it's not a fight Axel was after, he just wants to beat someone up and take their lunch money, so everyone else still knows they're on the playground. The obvious flaw is that it would be Stannis biting at his own foot. True, the Celtigars have defected, if you can call it that, but they have been loyal to Stannis from the start, and historically, Claw Isle has been much more beholden to Dragonstone than it has the King's Landing-focused crownlands. The Celtigars have always been aligned with Dragonstone, even if the basis of that relationship was the Valerian heritage, which obviously Stannis does not share. As Davos will come to argue, there's nothing to be gained from attacking one's own people, especially as Lord Celtigar, the traitor in question, wouldn't even be present for the attack. At the end of the day, this is a battle plan more in the Tywin Lannister vein than Stannis Baratheon. I don't think we ever get confirmation from the man himself how much Salador San was into this plan, but there seems little reason for Axel to lie about it, and there definitely would have been a lot of material gain involved. So as much as we may like Davos' friendship, this attack definitely would have moved Salador into the bad person camp. And speaking of material gain, and wowee, let me read you this quote. Chloril was but lightly garrisoned, its castle reputedly stuffed with merged carpets, volantine glass, gold and silver plate, jeweled cups, magnificent hawks, an axe of valerian steel, a horn that could summon monsters from the deep, chests of rubies, and more wines than a man could drink in a hundred years. So I almost wish they could have gone just to see all this cool stuff. A valerian steel axe, a horn that can raise krakens? Anyone else feel like we might eventually see these become important again? It certainly would be cool to see that axe welded in the final battle. The show would have us believe it'd end up with uh, Sandok again, but there are definitely a lot more possibilities in the books. I personally wouldn't be surprised if Daenerys visits or even lands on Chloril when she comes, again because of that Valerian connection, and maybe also she needs a way to hold off Euron from getting that horn. If that's the case, it wouldn't be out of the realm for Jorah to end up with the axe, and he'd fit in quite well being the huntsman to Danny's Snow White. Plus, he grew up in a keep made out of logs, so he probably has quite the experience. Stannis now makes it clear specifically why Davos has been brought up, even without saying it out loud. He is conflicted over Claw Isle, and he doesn't want to do it truly. But with so few options and such frustration, he can't find a good reason not to. Hence, enter Davos. And does he waste any time in being the awesome Davos we all know and love? No, he does not. Your grace, he says slowly. I make it folly. I am cowardice. As we said earlier, even with the full knowledge that saying so could either land him back in a cell or being thrown from a bridge... Davos chooses truth and honesty when it comes to Stannis. But he figures in for a penny, in for a pound, and decides to completely insult Axel as well. Davos brings up many of the points we mentioned a second ago, but crucially, he knows that he simply can't miss out the bit about treason, or Stannis won't hear a word of what he's saying. Brilliantly, he manages to turn the whole thing around by framing Stannis as the would-be traitor if he were to attack, punishing the relatives of the very few men, of the very men who died for him. A surefire a surefire way to convince your few remaining men that they definitely do not want to fight for you. He points out why Lord Celticar might bend the knee. He had so little choice unless he wanted his own people to suffer, and matters are so rarely black and white that he has shown loyalty to Stannis when Stannis asked for it, and would Stannis do the same now? And also doubles down that this would be a sacking, not an attack. True, the argument hits a snag when it comes to Celticar's actual men instead of the Lord himself, and though Davos thinks to himself that he is losing by this point, I still personally think he is making a fantastic argument. But to combat the snag, he has to get a bit reckless and invoke Robert's Rebellion, the conflict that originally brought them together, to show that not every choice is so clear-cut. A desperate folly took hold of Davos, a recklessness akin to madness. 
As you remain loyal to King Eris when your brother raised his banners, he blurted. If we've somehow doubted Davos being a, a pretty ballsy guy throughout this chapter, there really isn't any argument after seeing him say this straight to Stannis' face. This is essentially the perfect argument to make. Stannis cannot condemn Seltigard's men without ignoring what he himself did, and Stannis is simply not a hypocrite. Hence, the matter of Chloral is all but settled. Davos sells a whole bunch of people with a mixture of honesty and daring, and as a cherry on top, he gets rid of Sir Axel for a bit. Once Axel leaves and Stannis starts reminiscing about wars gone by, we eventually come to what I've always believed might be one of the most important paragraphs we ever see in terms of wanting to understand Stannis Baratheon as a person. Before we get there, this odd line, oft times I wonder why my brothers wanted it so desperately, in reference to the, the Iron Throne, it goes to show, if nothing else, Stannis never had a meaningful con conversation with his brother, Robert specifically, about how being king made him feel. Even if Robert did want the throne during the war, which is debatable, he certainly didn't after. But enough of that, let's get to the real important stuff. I am a king. Wants do not enter into it. I have a duty to my daughter, to the realm, even to Robert. Although Stannis is missing out some key elements in his quest for the throne, I think this is him getting down to the bare bones of it. It is not a quest for glory or power such as it was for Renly, although if we're being honest here there are at least similar elements for Stannis at certain parts of his journey. He does it because that is how it's supposed to be. He's doing it as a duty, not a want. And that's going to be incredibly important in a few minutes when Melisandre turns up and starts talking about things bigger than the Iron Throne. Stannis continues his jaunt down memory lane with his plans for the future as he details his hunger to win King's Landing so that he may settle the old debt of being unconsulted and scour the court clean, as he wanted Robert to do back in the day. Personally, I think we'd all be lying if, if we didn't say it'd be very, very interesting to have seen Stannis do just this. I've personally wasted too much time on imagining the unstoppable force of Peter Baelish plying his trade against the immovable object that is Stannis Baratheon. Though they are far from strangers, I'd pay any money to actually see this on page. And I also very much doubt I'm the first to get strong Krieg and Stark vibes when thinking of Judge Stannis atop the Iron Throne. Here's a quote, a big quote. And some will lose more than the tips of their fingers, I promise you. They have made my kingdom bleed, and I do not forget that. It's badass quote of the day. Play the jingle, Patrick. It's not just the North who don't forget. Making sure Stannis' political dreams don't purely consist of him getting his own back in King's Landing, he outlines that he very much does want to make a better Westeros, a fair Westeros, where justice is the prevailing theme above all, and those who have wronged others pay the price. Nothing is so simple, but in my view, it is definitely endearing that this is what Stannis wants, especially as he wants to bridge a gap we've seen be far too wide in this recent war, the highest lord to the lowest gutter rat. Perhaps thinking of this wide gap, Stannis decides to strengthen his reign by getting himself a hand made of both. Sir Davos of House Seaworth, the king said, are you my true and honest liege man, now and forever? I am, your grace. And do you swear to serve me loyally all your days, to give me honest counsel and swift obedience, to defend my rights and my realm against all foes in battles great and small, to protect my people and punish my enemies. I do, Your Grace. Then rise again, Davos Seaworth, and rise as Lord of the Rainwood, Admiral of the Narrow Sea, and Hand of the King. Ooh, that's enough for goose pimples, isn't it? It's also interesting because we've never seen this oath made before. Robert didn't ask it of Ned, Joffrey didn't ask it of Tywin, and that was the most public and most likely scenario. Tywin definitely didn't ask it of uh, Tyrion. I don't remember anything of this nature between Daenerys and Barristan, so is Stannis just ad-libbing here? If so, incredibly impressive. He hits Davos' specific character on the head with his asking for honest counsel and to protect his people. Is Davos honest and true? You bet he is. Hence, the one true hand ascends to his position. So eat your little heart out, Peter Baelish. You thought you were league leader of upward social mobility, but you just got blasted out the water. Peter Baelish had a house, however small. 
He got mixed in with the Tullys because his lord dad got chummy with another lord while commanding lesser men in the war. He had Lysa Aaron getting in places. Davos Seaworth, however, came from the same place as Hot Pie. And here he is, not only just surviving to adulthood, but making the incredible leap to knighthood and now, somehow, miraculously, bypassing the lord above him to become Hand. As Davos notes, in one day he's gone from prisoner to Hand, but that's nothing compared to his overall life arc. Because Davos is Davos, he has to point out this news might not go down well, and his effectiveness might be limited because of it. But Stannis cuts to the heart of it, the rest is merely details. What Stannis wants is a good man by his side. The We Will Make New Lords line is also interesting, and this whole passage really does give the impression that Stannis wants to make a new world order in Westeros. Wasting no time, the king and his hand get on with debating incredibly complex issues, although some of this did come before Davos's naming. Firstly, Stannis puts the final nails in the coffin of Davos's argument that Melisandre kills his sons, as was hinted in his previous chapter. He also at least sands off the edges of the other issues Davos has with Melisandre, and again reinforces that she is on side by pointing out that she saved him from Seraxel's own flames. Having said that, this is really the first we've heard from Stannis firsthand since Renly's death, and it's clear Melisandre has convinced him she had nothing to do with that death, which we all know to be untrue. I'm wondering if this ever comes back as an issue. Perhaps as Stannis meets the one living person who was there and saw Renly die. Hmm. With the outstanding minutes on Melisandre dealt with, Stannis turns the conversation to a large part of why he needs Davos as a hand. What to do with Edric Storm. That actual question isn't raised just yet, but it's enough to bring Edric back into the narrative and note that Stannis brings the conversation full circle when he appears genuinely hurt that Courtney Penrose ever believed he would hurt Edric. It still angers me. How could he think I would hurt the boy? I chose Robert, did I not? When that hard day came, I chose blood over honour. That obviously links back to the pivotal question Davos asked him a few minutes ago. By himself the boy is naught, you understand, but in his veins flows my brother's blood. This is pretty interesting, considering Stannis has just spent a few paragraphs detailing Edric's personality and personal history, so it hints his inner conflict to see him as a boy and nephew and as a future tool, supported by Davos noting that he will not actually use Edric's name. Edric is shelved for just a few minutes when Melisandre finally completes the new ruling trio of Dragonstone to discuss something above the mere idea of changing the political structure of the world. She enters, almost continuing the conversations she was having with Davos in the dungeons about the true overall battle and the need to put that at a higher importance than the rest of Westeros. But critically, we know that famously unreligious Stannis has had a change of heart concerning the Red Woman's message. With Axel Florence's vision, I still maintain he saw nothing, but as Davos notes, Stannis is obviously being 100% genuine when he talks about his own visions, and his description makes an immediate connection with the reader, because this is very obviously the Fist of the First Men. So firstly, this makes this chunk of chapters that we've had today very pro-relore. We've had one of his powers proven without doubt already with Aya, and now we have another with a very true vision that there's just no way to make up. Secondly, for first-time readers, this is very exciting, because it's the first hint that two major storylines that seem to have absolutely no connection to each other in the Night's Watch and maybe John are going to collide eventually with Stannis and Davos. It'd be like the Tyrells having Ramsay over for dinner. You just couldn't see the connection before. We'll have to wait a while for the actual decision to move north and abandon the Southern War, but the tracks are being laid. I particularly like that Stannis asks why he is the chosen one when either of his brothers fit the popular hero type much more easily, and that Melisandre answers that it is because he is a righteous man, something that he needs Davos to become. Unfortunately, I do think this might be foreshadowing to the idea that Stannis is going to do so much good for the world, perhaps even put it in place to be saved, only to be overshadowed by new people who look much more like the Hollywood hero in Daenerys and Jon. But we have a long way to go before all that, and the conversation is turned back to the here and now, when the leeches are introduced. We get the hint here that Melisandre has been pressing and pressing about Edric being burnt, and that Stannis has had to rebuff her again and again, and argue her down to this compromise instead. 
Neither of them are particularly happy about it, but Stannis has not sold himself completely yet, and the constant argument over what Stannis will need to sacrifice or, de or debase himself with in order to win the eventual war continues. And that's a bit of a ooh moment for Shireen. Though Melisandre isn't getting what she wants, she likely sees it as a necessary step, because if we believe she's seen the combined scheming of Walder Frey, Euron and Alain Tyrell, and it's confirmed the coming deaths of kings, then she knows she'll have then she knows she'll soon have the clout to finally get her prize in Edric. For rereaders, it's time for a rueful smile as we get it spelled out that Stannis will be the only of the five kings still standing. And what a first day on the job that all makes for Davos. Okay, long podcast already. I will continue. We will finish off with Jamie 5. Here we go. In Jamie's chapters so far, we've been treated to several extended passages of key memories from the past, but clearly all pale in comparison to what we get in this here chapter. We can say the same of the hints about Jamie about Jamie and Brienne being romantically linked, or indeed the hints that Jamie could possibly become a better man in the future. Clearly, there is no better chapter for understanding Jamie as a person, and I'd be confident in saying that, aside from the actual loss of his hand, this is the most memorable and cited chapter of Jamie's pre-King's Landing storm journey, or possibly even all of storm. As much as we can say that Jamie has a stronger connection to Brienne than he once did after their much as we can say Jamie has a stronger connection to Brienne than he once did after their kidnapping, we can't say he chooses to enter her tub for any other reason that he knows it's the top option for making her uncomfortable. As we saw with Tyrion making his jokes after the battle, this cockiness is the surest sign we've had yet that Jamie will indeed survive. I've lost the hand I killed the king with, the hand that flung the Stark boy from that tower, the hand I'd slide between my sister's thighs to make her wet. Like we said last week, there can be no moving on while Jamie had his hand strapped around his neck. Thankfully, that is no longer the case, and it's interesting that Jamie lists all the evil things he did with this hand, symbolising that the man, or hand, who did those things is being left behind. Although, do note that for each of those things, he's listed previously that he believes none of them are evil himself, so we're getting a bit of back and forth there. It's the un unexpected boner of Jamie that puts him at such an ease that he abandons his tried and true strategy of making Brienne as, as annoyed and uncomfortable as possible for a genuine emotional apology. And it's because that... And it's because this might genuinely be his first sexual desire he's had for any woman other than Cersei, he certainly not mentioned it coming up before, and it comes from probably the most opposite Cersei woman there is as well. Quick quote here, Are you thick as a castle wall? Hey, get your own foreshadowing, Brienne. This belongs to Gren now. Back off. Unfortunately, even genuine apologies don't solve problems because, despite shared trauma, these two aren't friends. They were hitting each other with swords not so long ago, and as Jamie's thoughts focus on, this is in large part this is in large part thanks to Jamie's reputation as Kingslayer, which is interesting given how much Brienne is going to have to deal with that same problem in the next book. It's also interesting in that in the same way Tywin actually does care about the opinions of the sheep, so does Jamie really care about being the Kingslayer. Then, as talk of wildfire and heat from the water combines, Jamie treats us to memory town. Recall, this is the first time we are told of the extended wildfire plot and the fact Ares had descended far enough that he intended to burn the entire city. Having already read through the Battle of the Blackwater, we know what horrific devastation and loss of life this would have led to, and we can already piece together the end point, as obviously that did not happen. Something, Ares planted caches at all seven gates. Aside from perhaps trying to make a note to the gods, this is a death sentence to almost all within the city. If the gates are impassable, and the fire doesn't burn itself out, short of scrabbling over the walls or jumping off the docks, everyone within the city would eventually burn. Chilling to think that Ares had considered all that. I enjoy the mention of Chelstead's 11-hour switch of conscience, even if it did ultimately fail, and this is um, Hand of the King, Chelstead, the last one, because it paints a man who throws down duty for what is actually right and then pays the price. 
The same conundrum was happening with Jamie, both for Jelstead's burning and Rickard Carstock's, but he chose his duty and lived to regret it. And Jamie recounts the moment he had to actually make the decision. There were a lot of different aspects to consider. Could he betray his king, his oath as a Kingsguard, his oath to his father? Could he become a Kingslayer? Could he allow the wildfire to go off? But it's important to remember the situation Jamie was actually in at the time. He had been charged with the command of the Red Keep, the most important castle in the realm, as a mere teenager, and now it was under siege. It's not such a different scenario from another team who held a great castle under siege in the same rebellion. Where Stannis kept his jaw tensed, however, Jamie made an actual effort to make peace, and was denied by his king. Even an attempt at minimising bloodshed was not entertained, forcing Jamie to confront those same questions on the oaths again. Left with no other choice but to choose, Jamie chose. While I do believe the command to kill Tywin is a large part of it, I also firmly believe there is the wildfire plot that turned it all for Jamie, especially in the way he frames this retelling. The inclusion of his later hunting down of the other pyromancers shows this wasn't a flash in the pan outburst, but a thought out decision, and perhaps that Jamie felt some responsibility over not finishing it earlier. Although we already knew some of that, Brienne gets to the gets to the meat of the chapter when she asks why didn't Jamie ever tell anyone? Now the truth is, Jamie doesn't really give an answer. He tries to use his wit to deflect first off, before probably hitting a bit closer to home when talking about the judging of Ned Stark, but neither seem entirely satisfactory to me. I think some of it is guilt and shame over letting it get that far, some of it is probably guilt that Elia and her children still died, but I think the core is still the idea that he shouldn't have to explain himself. He knows everyone will immediately think the worst of him, and that's so unfair, seems so indignant that he should have to defend the fact that he did the right thing and saved a city full of people, that he decided to throw himself in the opposite. This is all an incredibly emotional moment for Jamie, so if people want to view him that way, he'll let them, and he'll show them all by embracing the Kingslayer image and never correcting them. I suppose we should not forget his young age and immaturity at this moment. Which makes this end quote for the bathhouse scene so significant. Guards, he heard the wench shout. The Kingslayer. Jamie, he thought. My name is Jamie. Moments before, Jamie was looking at his hand and finally thinking that yes, his greatest strength had been robbed, but so has the image of the Kingslayer. Although it's interesting that he still views the act as his greatest shame, hinting that mixed up in this decision to become the Oathbreaker is not having to examine the fact that he broke his oaths. Crucially, Jamie is finding some good in his loss, and as we, as we see of him passing out. Finally, after nearly 20 years, Jamie wants to leave the Kingslayer behind, and he's taking the first step by actually saying the words out loud. Just two quick points before we move on. Apparently, Jamie never told Cersei about all this, the only person he'd ever be likely to. I wonder how different things could have been if she'd found out about the wildfire earlier. Secondly, did it ever play into Jamie's mind that even with his killing of the pyromancers, the caches themselves remain, at least in some places? Did he never consider that they could be found and exploited? Or worse, was he perhaps well aware, but figured he'd done his part already? From there, the chapter takes a rather brazen turn into a completely different scene, with Roose Bolton inviting his new guests to dinner. Jamie begins the meal by trying to make his own power play, by disguising his weakness, quickly slipping into a chair before he has to be helped. Unfortunately, this is immediately trumped by his knocking over of the wine. With many villains, that'd be enough to earn scorn and humiliation. I'm thinking Cersei, in particular, would think up some choice words here. But Roos doesn't need to do that to exert his power. His pale eyes do enough for him. Interestingly, Roos makes an attempt at small talk before Jamie pushes for straightforwardness, and Roos is only too happy to oblige. How often does he get the opportunity, after all, with all this scheming? I think as he's got to my note on uh, Roos kind of going through his multiple options of who to sell to and how he gets Jamie off base there. As the meal progresses, we can see that Jamie really never has had to play this game before and only becomes more and more frustrated with Roos not telling him what he wants immediately. I think Jamie might struggle in this field with even a minor league player of the game, but up against Roos, well that is cruel. Hence, he begins to massively overcompensate, 
switching between threats of running home to his dad or simply killing Roos right there and then. It's the perfect image of a spoiled child not getting what he wants, and to Roos it can't feel much different. Here's a quote. Lannister friendship could mean much. Jamie thought he knew the game they were playing now. Oh, Jamie, this really does just double down on our sympathy here, because he clearly really does not know the game they are playing. He achieves nothing in this short conversation, takes none of Roos's hit, fairly blatant hints, and just isn't in the same league whatsoever. A different quote from Brienne this time. The big wrench rose to her feet. I serve Lady Stark, and I the King in the North, or the King who lost the North, as some now call him. So that's just a very quick note to uh, Roos's new allegiances there, the King who lost the North. It's only when the conversation turns to Vargo Hope and his own ambition of how to get out of a sticky situation in relation to Tywin by using Jamie to get north, where Jamie really does click. After Roos's well-laid-out explanation of Vargo's predicament, he hints that he needs assurance that Roos himself won't be blamed for the maiming. After all, that could bring all well-made plans crashing down, showing that the earlier chit-chat of who to sell to was nothing but Roos getting the measure of Jamie. It's also worth noting that as much as Varga has been painted as a mindless weapon that goes off and does Tywin's bidding, like a Gregor or an Aemory Lorch, he is also a man with ambition, plans and a will of his own. As Jamie will come to relate later, the human element is just too large a factor for all plans to go off without a hitch. If Tywin wasn't guaranteed to come and end Vargo for switching to Roos, perhaps Jamie's hand wouldn't have needed to come off. Then again, the other lesson is that while many bet on their fortune and get away with it, for many more, it doesn't work and they are left in a position similar to Vargo's. I was going to use Roos as an example of everything coming off just right, but to be fair, he puts in a lot more thought and planning into everything than Vargo ever did. Finally, in this chapter that saw their greatest union yet, we also see Brienne and Jamie break away in this ending, or they're about to anyway, as Roos has clearly thought about how to soften the blow to Vargo that Jamie is leaving, obviously intending to keep him just happy enough until Roos himself leaves for, leaves for the twins. And then Vargo can be as annoyed as he likes. While early in the chapter, Roos slipped back into uh, I am a loyal Northman mode, so they could accuse Brienne of treason, oh, the irony of that, and keep her quiet, he doesn't even bother with such now. He knows his plan is about to go down, he needs Jamie to smooth out a wrinkle, but Brienne is of no use to him, so she simply doesn't matter. Luckily, as we'll find out, a bit of absence is just what Jamie needs for his heart to grow fonder. And that is Jamie 5, that is part 8 of Storm of Swords, that is your scraps and scrolls today. Like I said, super long podcast, super, super long. So I will be very quick with my sign-off here. Remember, check out A Song of Madness and Ice and Firecon. Keep your eye out for the Brotherhood Without Manners podcast, where I'll be guesting sometime this week. I'm not sure when it'll be out, but I'm sure it's soon. And as always, thank you to our patrons. Thank you to you for downloading and listening. Get in touch. Don't forget Pear Pick. It's Eamon versus Egan, and I will see you next time. See you later. <laughs>